This is Many Voices, One World, a UNESCO podcast. I'm your host, George Papayanis. Today, I am thankful to have with us Dr. Eliza Bayard, who is the executive director of GLSEN. I will let Dr. Bayard explain all about GLSEN and the last 20 years as its executive director. Eliza Bayard, thank you so much for being with us. Welcome to Many Voices, One World. It is a great pleasure to be with you. Tell us about GLSEN. What is GLSEN? Sure. Uh, well, GLSEN is um, an NGO in the U.S. that has been around since 1990 when a group of teachers and parents and students came together to say, we are sick and tired of the way that lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people are victimized and demonized in K-12 through schools. Basically, since that time, GLSEN has become a uh, a national organization with an international network of partners, all of whom are dedicated to making sure that every member of every school community is respected, no matter their sexual orientation, their gender identity, or their gender expression. Um, we've been working with, uh, we work with students across the entire United States. We work with NGO partners in other countries. Um, and our work is really about changing the system of education in the U.S., to recognize, support, and affirm um, LGBTQ young people in K through 12 schools all across the country and promote a future of respect for all. As we begin to wade into this, uh, I'm going to ask, I guess, um, an important question within this context. Tell me, what are your pronouns? Well, I really appreciate that question, and it's usually something I lead with. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, um, which um, is not something everyone assumes when they look at me, uh, but is important to me as part of who I am. And um, across the U.S., it actually has become fairly standard practice now to have one's pronouns on your business card and on signatures of emails to let people know proactively um, your your own identity in terms of your gender. Um, and uh, it's a really wonderful way that people have begun to uh, just be clearer about how important it is to not make assumptions and to allow people to tell you who they are um, instead of allowing others to look at someone and decide, make all kinds of assumptions. That's a, a way that we get into all kinds of trouble um, with people of all different identities, and it's no different with issues of gender. Is this, is this helping in terms of providing um, a step towards greater understanding? Do you find that as a result of this, there is at least a light bulb that, that, that goes off in people's heads? Well, I think what is hugely important is that when you make it standard for everyone, you take the deeply painful burden off of those people for whom it is most salient. Uh, when you look at patterns of victimization in K-12 schools across the United States and really around the world, people who are, quote-unquote, gender nonconforming, who don't act or look the way they're, quote-unquote, supposed to, um, based on uh, some external determination, are really the most victimized. Transgender and gender nonconforming people face some of the most painful burdens to full participation in school and to getting a good education. But think about the burden 
on a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 16-year-old, a 5-year-old if the assumption is it is up to them to go around telling other people who they are proactively and surprising them. If we can make it standard that everyone in the world is, as part of their introduction of themselves, says, my name's Eliza Byard, my pronouns are she, her, and hers, um, then that child will not have that additional barrier to participation facing them when they know that something around them is responding to them in the wrong way. So should I be thinking about this for myself then, when you say everybody? Yeah, I think that it would be wonderful if every person made this a standard part of how they introduce themselves. And could you help me understand then how I would reflect to come up with what would be my pronouns? Well, I'm going to make an assumption. I don't know whether that is that an issue that has caused you concern, pain, caused you to question who you are? No. Yeah, I think then in that case, you might think for a minute, gosh, if I were going to say, if I were to think about how, what pronouns I think someone should use in talking to me, I think you might have a rather short conversation with yourself and decide to say, hi, my name's George. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And, uh, but by doing that, you don't, this is the thing about the privilege that so many of us have walking through the world. We, and I say this as a white person, from the United States with ample means. Um, there are so many things we don't have to think about ever. There are so many things that are not barriers to participation for us. And if we could decenter the position of a person who doesn't face barriers every day, just take that off to the side and say, I'm fortunate in that way, but I'm going to help undo the assumption that you should be able to look at someone and know what their gender is just right off the bat. And by by taking that step, whether or not it's a difficult one for you, it's an important one for someone else. You're making me think of um, uh, something that I encountered uh, on my on my Facebook page when a good friend of mine uh, posted a picture of um, herself with her son who had just come out to her as transgender. And it was... And this is a wonderful family, uh, a loving family, and and I know how supportive that they would be and how this has changed nothing for them. But I also paused a bit and and I felt I felt a little bit of of pain for for her her son who has now said that he is transgender. And and I thought it's going it's going to be hard, and that made me sad. And I, why does it have to be hard? And in thinking that thought, what you've done is taken the first step towards being an ally to undoing that difficulty. I think you know. I think back when I came out to my mother, um, many years ago, more than I will say. Uh, and I sat with her and I told her that I was a lesbian and she, her response was how deeply concerned she was because my life was going to be so difficult. And I understood that at the time as she loved me very, very much. And the kind of revolution we've experienced in many parts of the world for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people, one that is very much still underway ultimately is grounded in the love 
that people have for each other, that parents have for their children, that, um, that communities have in a more general way for each other. Uh, often when people say love is love, they're thinking about um, you know, a man who wants to marry another man, a woman who wants to marry another woman. But when I think of our movement as a revolution that's about love, it really um, has come about in the United States in the ways that it has. I can't speak for t other countries because people love those they are in community with. They love their children. They love their families. And as they come to realize the difficulties those people face, they are impassioned about doing something about it. I think the same is true about people who have come to understand um, race differently, uh, white people I'm talking about here, just to be very clear, um, in the United States, that when they are in relationship and when they feel love and they open their eyes um, to how deeply, deeply difficult every single gosh darn day can be for the people that they love, they're impassioned about doing something about it. And ultimately, that's what's going to save us all. Can you open up a little bit for me, a little bit more, I should say? What was it like for you as a, as a, a kid in, in, in school um, and coping with these, with these issues and trying to find your place? Well, I'll tell you, uh, again, as... As somebody white in America, I had a lot of advantages. Um, I was more aware of what I faced as a woman. But then as I came out to myself, which happened quite young, um, we were going to dinner at some friends of my family, and my mom turned around and was explaining to me and my little brother that the people we were going to see were two women, and it was like they were married, and that's called being a lesbian. I was like, oh, that's what I am. Um, so I was very fortunate in that regard, I think, to have that realization so young. But... You know, I grew up in a context in the United States, a life of, of, you know, relative privilege. And everyone was always saying that you're, people in your position, are you must do great things. You must have an important job. You must go on to do, um, you must help the world and do all these things. And the thing in my mind the entire time was, if you knew this thing about me, this would all be over. Forget it. That's scary. Yeah. I mean, it, sure, it was scary. I mean, my, my idea was that I was going to go have a career and just have a career. And then when I was done with everything I wanted to accomplish, then I could come out. And so my vision, what was I going to do? I was going to come out at 60 once I had retired, 65 or later. And then maybe I don't know what was going to happen. But, yeah, that was my, that was my assumption. And I remember I came out to a wonderful uh, high school teacher of mine, and this was in the uh, early part of the 80s, and uh, I came out to a high school teacher, and he said, um, he said, well, you know, there's probably things you can do to change that. And, uh, you know, my, my high school graduation present from the Supreme Court of the United States was a case called Bowers versus Hardwick. When I graduated that month, um, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that it was perfectly constitutional to outlaw homosexuality in the United States. So, so then what, right? So there were at the time, and these laws are still on the books, but they've been ruled unconstitutional, there were many states of the union where it was illegal to be gay. 
And that only changed in 2003. It's only been 15 years that it's definitively legal to be gay in the U.S. But I also realized when this teacher and I had this conversation that I had to sort of sit back, think about what I did have the power to do, and again, recognizing that there was a lot to work with, um, really dedicate myself to trying to figure out how to make things better. You mentioned that your your mom was explaining that you were going to visit a lesbian couple. I would imagine that your mom did not have any curriculum during her school days in which these issues were discussed in the framework of, uh, of the classroom. And yet, she was clearly enlightened, tolerant, open-minded. But how does that get defined within the context of these issues? And also within the context of what the E stands for in GLSEN. Um, and just to make it clear, since we left a cliffhanger before, GLSEN, uh, before, we just use GLSEN now, but we were the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network uh, based on our, our earliest formulation. But um, formal curriculum, here's the thing. Um, my mother... Education was a huge value in my family, is a huge value, and I think that for folks who have benefited from education across the United States, there has always been a story we have told ourselves about our ideals and our values, that we are a country that is founded on the idea that you can uh, one can make one's own destiny, that um, our founding documents are about ensuring the opportunity for happiness and liberty. Um, and, and all men are created equal. <laughs> well, you start with all men are created equal, which is still part of the problem. Right, exactly. Um, and, exactly. and I think, you know, but we are a country that was founded on chattel slavery, uh, enslavement of black people, and the internal contradiction of um, our story, the story we tell ourselves and how we really came to be and what life is like for people has always been there. So for people who, for good people of conscience, who get a liberal education in the United States of America, I think that that, whether or not you have a formal curriculum saying something about, well, there have always been lesbian and gay people, or there, you know, you know, you ought to understand this about the history of our country. If you really look at our, our founding narrative and our actual reality and our actual history, the contradictions in there, I think, require people of good conscience to open themselves up to the fact that things have to change and that there's more... Um, there's more to the world than maybe what they have experienced themselves. I think, I think it was my mom who once talked to me about the problem with the golden rule. The problem with the golden rule, the idea of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, assumes that all of us are having the same experience. Mm -hmm. So she, there's the platinum rule, do unto others as they would have you do unto them. And that requires the kind of questioning and the kind of decentering of your own experience that we were talking about with the pronouns. 
Um, and I think a lot of what's happening in the United States right now in terms of thinking about really brought on by Black Lives Matter, uh, the queer dreamers, um, young people and old of who are not white, who have been crusaders for greater justice for many, many years. We need to decenter what has always assumed to have been the core of human experience, which in the United States is very narrowly defined. You're listening to Many Voices, One World. I'm your host, George Pompeianis. My guest is uh, Dr. Eliza Bayard, who is the executive director of GLSEN. Um, Eliza, does it have to be more prescriptive, however, than just assuming that with lofty goals, we're going to get it? Oh, absolutely. No, I think um, I'm, I'm very proud of where my mother got to with what she was given. Um, it absolutely must be. And what we've seen time and time again is that uh, if you don't name the issues that you don't, you know, um, the, they will not be addressed directly. And so, for example, uh, in the early aughts, uh, GLSEN began a campaign to ensure that states across the United States passed bullying prevention laws that specifically enumerated categories of protection uh, that, that said um, – Every school in this state shall have a bullying prevention policy that protects all students, including immigrants, on the basis of nationality, on the basis of race, on the basis of sexual orientation, on the basis of gender identity, of gender expression, of religion. You know, if you do not enumerate those categories, all means all is not enough. And what we've seen over time, we actually, there are uh, 18 states in the District of Columbia that passed laws with this enumeration. And in those states, you see greater action on the issues. And actually, at the student level, uh, an improvement in the experience of LGBTQ youth in those states as a result. We've been speaking a bit within the context of, of the United States, uh, which is where GLSEN, uh, and in New York, where GLSEN is, uh, uh, was founded and, and, and currently operates. Uh, yet you're sitting here in the um, paneled studios of, of UNESCO in our audiovisual, uh, our audiovisual space. And we are an international organization, and, and we see these issues from our own uh, observance as issues that are critical for, um, for being addressed and setting certain standards and certain benchmarks um, globally, internationally. How do you see the challenges when you begin to go beyond the framework of, let's say, North America? Absolutely. And I have to say that working in partnership with folks at UNESCO over the last really eight to ten years has been a hugely formative experience for me and all my colleagues at GLSEN. Uh, we now work with a network of uh, 30 uh, NGO partners around the world and have been so... Um, fortunate to get to work at UNESCO on some of those benchmarks and norms and the ways that really ultimately this effort to benefit LGBT children across the world is part of the SDG commitment um, that we see carried out here. Um, and so how does this play out? I would say um, what has been interesting, particularly in Europe, since we are sitting in Paris, is that 
looking at LGBT movements and education efforts to reduce homophobia, transphobia in uh, primary and secondary education is that I see over time this different dynamic in the U.S. and in Europe that I think is important to bear in mind right now, which is that in Europe, uh, European institutions created a norm and an expectation through policy and law regarding LGBT equality. Um, in the United States, we still don't have that at the national level. And so a lot of my European LGBT colleagues whom I've been speaking with this week, sort of checking in with people around Europe, um, are talking about the difficulty they have because all of their advocacy has been very focused on policymakers and lawmakers. And in, in the U.S., obviously, we do that. I just told you about a, a legislative campaign of many years for GLSEN. But we knew that in order to get there, we didn't have that toehold, the handhold of policy or legislative legitimacy of equality, stated norm, we had to create it over many, 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 many years. It's not Glisson's work, but an entire movement. We had to work on the culture forever in order to get to the point that where you could change the laws. A culture of what? A culture of acceptance, a culture of uh, awareness, a culture... Mm -hmm. What, when you say culture, a culture of... Of narrow-mindedness, what were you? Mm. What, what were you trying to target? Because that would have been important, I would imagine. Sure. Uh, well, okay. So I think in terms of systems change. So I'm thinking of different actors in systems of education. So you have the professional sector of professional educators in their associations. You have parents and families, um, and it begins when I when Glisten was created in 1990. K-12 schools didn't think there was such a thing as an LGBTQ youth. Being gay was something you decided to do when you went off to college, right? So the first step for GLSEN was to demonstrate that LGBT people exist in K-12 schools. Then they exist and they face certain difficulties. Then the response to those difficulties is not to be closeted or to convert to not being gay. It's to have the system respond. So this very broad level, not just GLSEN, but then also as a movement, was people coming out, the creation of National Coming Out Day, the, the idea that we are everywhere. And, of course, this is coming also out of the momentum of the unbelievable disruption and violence and pain of the AIDS crisis in the U.S., um, so there was coming out. For GLSEN, we focused a great deal on the professional sector and the culture, the norms of, of teaching, of counseling, of leading a school community. And I'm very proud to tell you that today it is a norm among professional educators in the U.S. that they will support and affirm LGBTQ youth just like any other child in their classroom, but with a mind to what that child needs doesn't mean that everyone does it yet, but if you ask them, is it your job, is it your professional responsibility to take care of LGBTQ youth, 87% of them say yes. And that is a huge change in terms of the culture of our schools. These, these children, these students are visible. They are, un, they are to some degree, we have a lot of work to do, they are still by far the most at-risk group in our schools across every category of risk that the CDC monitors. But they are seen, 
and we will continue to work to make sure that every teacher acts on that professional responsibility. And I think I do not believe that 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 work that happens within civil society has happened to the same extent in other places, and that's we have an international program now of partnership with NGOs based in other cultures, other social contexts, other countries, to help them develop the evidence base that can help you build to that. I think you were anticipating my next question, because when you speak about culture, culture can be something that is, of course, very much well, defined sometimes, well, within national boundaries or geographic regions. Uh, and so adapting that methodology means acknowledging that the sensitivities, the cultural influences are, are, are going to be very different. And how is that working for you in terms of when you are thinking about how civil society can engage locally, in other places around the world, how can they be effective? Absolutely right. And that's why at GLSEN, our international initiative is, at, is about partnership with uh, NGOs and community-based organizations that are formally rooted in their own communities, in their own co- cultural context. So when we partner with someone who is with an organization in another country, another society, we come with a recipe, <laughs> and we come with some experience. And our recipe in the U.S. has been that if you take um, hard documentation and evidence, you take a um, professional experience of, of what can happen in a school, and you take the compelling story of an individual who's affected by this issue every day, and you bring those together and take them to the right decision maker, whether it's a principal in a school, a teacher in a classroom, a school board member in America, school officials, or to Congress and the president and the executive branch. If you bring that mix and say, look, this person has a deep need, there is something that can be done about it, and we think if you do this, I believe over time you'll see that not only does this person benefit, but the school as a whole benefits, or at least nobody else is harmed by it. Let's take that recipe and speak to the system in the language of its own self-interest with the moral kicker of there is someone in pain and you need to stop it. And the that whole question of how and when is the right moment, when is uh, an individual going to be safe speaking up, those are decisions that I could never make or even I, I could illustrate what's been true in the U.S. But our job in the U.S., I see, for GLSEN, is when there is a brave person willing to stand up and tell their story in order to make a difference in anywhere in the U.S., GLSEN's job is to be there to support them with, here's what you can ask for that's really going to help, here's the evidence that this thing works, and here's some support about who and how to tell your story, who to tell it to, how to tell it, and maybe we can even get you that appointment. We can help you get in there because if someone's going to be brave enough to do this, I don't want an ounce of that wasted. Um, and when that's true of a group in another country, let's let's talk through what might be what might work. Um, the thing we bring is uh, Glisten is hands down. Uh, the leader in getting the data to back up, uh, to really illustrate LGBTQ youth experience. And let's start there. Let's find out what people want, uh, what they're experiencing every day, and what they need. 
The core activity of our international partnerships, we work with three regions of the world. We work in Latin America, Eastern Europe, and the Pacific Islands right now. And the core activity is to document the experience of LGBTQ students as a basis for advocacy strategies and program development in that context that's appropriate for them. Um, so we have this going in 30 countries around the world. My guest is Eliza Bayard. She is the executive director of GLSEN. You're listening to Many Voices, One World, a UNESCO podcast. I'm your host, George Pompeianus. It seems that we're, as we begin to, you know, get to the point, we are looking at a, at kind of the, I guess what we call the, the, the golden ring. And if I had one word, it's inclusion. You're coming to UNESCO for a reason, and that is to talk about, I think as you've described it, as promising new directions for ending anti-LGBT bias and violence in schools. So I guess you're optimistic. I am, and uh, my optimism, what I have seen over the last couple of years in the United States is that the love and acceptance uh, for LGBTQ youth across the United States is prompting a rejection of the violence being directed at those young people by our government at the moment. And uh, it makes me supremely, supremely hopeful. Um, I think here for, for folks in other countries, and particularly being here at UNESCO, I think we all need to take a moment to appreciate what it means that we have begun to establish norms with respect to inclusion across education, and that in the context of this global project of the Sustainable Development Goals, there is an understanding that our children and all students should go to school free from violence, that they should go to school and be affirmed in who they are, and they should go to school as they learn in ways that will help them go through the rest of their lives and succeed. Um, that within that, there's an understanding that the violence directed, particularly gender-based violence directed at children every day across the world, includes these ingredients of homophobia and transphobia and sexism and misogyny that... Um, are barriers that no individual should have to live with and that must be cleared away for all our students. That is a big deal. To be included and named in that list um, is huge. And it's different from where we were 10 years ago. So as we look at the world right now and as we experience the direct violence being directed at LGBT people by resurgent autocracies, um, Let's remember that we have moved forward to a place where um, we're included in these norms. And as we fight on, we have moved five or six steps forward and have this behind us as we hold the line and figure out how to reach more of those who love us in ways that will inspire them to be part of the fight to dismantle this. Dr. Eliza Byard, thank you so much for being with us and for inspiring us as well. And uh, we look forward to hearing more and having you back with us when you're next coming through Paris, giving us an update on how we are progressing. 
It's been Dr. Eliza Byard, my guest on Many Voices, One World. She is the executive director of GLSEN, the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network. I'm your host, George Pompeianis, and I'm wishing you a great day, wherever you may be.